0: East.co. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, awareness and action is brought to you by Northern Trust front office solutions. Northern Trust's platform empowers asset owners with better operations and tech support to allow investment teams and CIOs to meet their middle and front office needs. Their blend of technology and service has resonated and generated a lot of interest from listeners of the show. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is deeply ingrained in the culture at Northern Trust, and a special thanks to them for sponsoring this important miniseries. Shortly after I finished the interviews for the Sustainable Investing mini-series, Black Lives Matter took center stage in the United States. I asked around and discovered that the subject is uncomfortable for many to discuss, and that while many CIOs are interested in being part of the solution, most are not familiar with the underlying nature of the problem or the actions to take as a result. This mini-series, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Awareness, and Action, is a four-part introduction to the issues at hand. We'll explore what's been going on for a long time and hear what some are doing about it. It's my small part in contributing to fostering the conversation. My guest on the first episode of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Awareness, and Action is Jake Walthauer. The co-founder and CEO of Blueprint Capital Advisors, an alternative investment manager that advises, sources, and oversees portfolios of managers on behalf of institutional clients. Jake launched Blueprint after two decades of experience on Wall Street, including senior roles at investment consultants Axia and Cliffwater, and at investment managers Cowan, Citadel, More Capital, and Morgan Stanley Asset Management. Black Enterprise magazine recognized him as one of the most influential blacks on Wall Street. Our conversation discusses Jake's path through investment banking to investment management, lessons from top alternative managers, and the business at Blueprint. Along the way, we address examples of structural and unconscious racial bias on Wall Street, points of sensitivity for black professionals, and Blueprint's current lawsuit alleging racial discrimination. Jake's experience sheds terrific insight into some of the subtle problems causing diversity challenges in finance. Please enjoy my conversation with Jake Wolfhour. Jake, great to see you. You too, Ted. Why don't we start with the beginning of your career
1: and just see where we go. Well, my career on Wall Street started in 1990. I was a investment banking analyst at Lehman Brothers, and I sort of got there through a non-traditional route. I grew up in a small town in upstate New York and wanted to work on Wall Street, thought that I could amass game-changing wealth for me and my family. And unfortunately, I didn't have Wall Street-type connections. In fact, where I grew up, I didn't even know anyone who went to a four-year college and so to try to get to Wall Street, for me, was quite a difficult thing to try and figure out. I knew I had to have really good grades. And when I was in college, I, I did really well, graduated cum laude. I knew I was a tenacious person. And you know, if I really applied my mind, I could figure things out. And so I just started picking up the phone and calling people who worked for investment banks and seeing if I could convince them to give me an opportunity. And I was fortunate enough to find a guy at Lehman Brothers who I got on the phone with and he said, you called me 14 times. And back then we didn't have cell phones. So I'd leave a message and I had to get back home at night from studying and I'd find answering machine messages. So I convinced him that I deserved an opportunity. He had introduced me to sponsors for educational opportunity. And that was the beginning of my opportunity. So I did a summer and then was able to get the full-time analyst position, which was my start. And investment banking is very different than investment management. I figured out pretty quickly that I didn't want to work seven days a week, working 16 hours a day. I think at one point when I was an analyst, I went 45 days straight without a day off. And so I said, there's got to be a better life. Fast forward 30 years, I'm running my own business. I'm working 16 hours a day, seven days a week, right? So... I don't know if I really learned a lesson from that experience, but that's kind of how I got my start.
0: When you showed up at Lehman, as you mentioned, you came out of left field back in 1990 to get into one of those programs. What did it feel like and what did it look like when you were
1: there? It was very different from anything I had experienced in my life. So I grew up in a small town, I went to a public school, and then I went to a public university and then I end up on Wall Street. And that route is very different from the kids who were in my analyst training program with me. They had grown up wealthy. They were all going to private schools and boarding schools. I couldn't even name a boarding school. They went to Ivy League institutions and really by virtue of family connections ended up in that analyst training program. And so when I got there, I realized about the only thing I had in common with the people who were in my analyst training program was the fact that we were all working for Lehman. It felt very different outside of those of us that came through some type of diversity program, everyone else was white. But having said that, very friendly, very open-minded, everyone got along really well. We were all young then, naive, and just knew that we wanted to be hotshot managing directors and occupy a corner office someday. So back then we ate three meals a day at our desk. We always had dinner together. And occasionally we'd get a weekend where we'd go spend time in someone's like eight bedroom country house, which was for me, like just out of this world, like you mean the house that you stay in 25 days a year is five times the size of the house I grew up in. So it was a a very different experience. But having said that, I think I was prepared for it and never really ran into any issues during that time period.
0: So how did you decide what to
1: do when you knew that investment banking probably wasn't your calling? Well, the thing about investment banking is it does introduce you to a lot of different areas on Wall Street, right? So you have your traders that are pricing stuff when you're doing initial public offerings or debt offerings. You have the bankers who are relationship driven, but very creative in terms of trying to help institutions accomplish their financial objectives. You had economists that you were getting information from. You had people who worked in accounting. You had investment managers that were buying things that we were distributing. So it was a great place to be trained, but also a good place to kind of get a window into how all these other areas kind of fed into what we'll call Wall Street. And so I looked over at investment management and said, wow, that seems like a pretty nice lifestyle. You still get paid pretty well, but every year you're not starting at ground zero. You accumulate assets, you get paid a fee on those assets, which effectively becomes an annuity stream for individuals and firms, as opposed to banking where every year you start at ground zero and you got to make transactions happen. And I would say that business to me seemed far more cyclical. Asset management seemed like a place where I could really have longevity.
0: And what was the step you took out of Lehman?
1: So out of Lehman, I actually took a step into government. I worked for a guy named H. Carl McCall, who was the controller of the state of New York. And he ran the then $56 billion New York State Common Retirement Fund. And so I was his right hand helping him oversee and manage the pension fund. And so I was involved in a selection of investment managers brokers who did execution, consultants that helped us do due diligence. And then I think back then, my wife and I, we got married while I was in that job. And before we knew it, we were pregnant. She was working in government at the DA's office, and I was working in government in the controller's office. And between the two of us, I think we were making 50 grand. And so someone had to go back to the private sector. And I kind of raised my hand and said, it's what I want to do anyway. Why not now? So I transitioned from the state comptroller's office to working at at Morgan Stanley Asset Management. So that was my first real asset management job. And so I think it was 1994, I went to work at Morgan Stanley Asset Management, and I was employee number 186. And back then, the firm was all about Barton Biggs and his macro views You had Stephen Roach and Byron Wien, also very well-known strategists and economists, but on the asset management side, Barton was the king. And so I went to work in Barton's asset management group, as it was called, and watched it go from 186 employees to like 10,000 by the time I left. How much time had passed? Six years, right? So there was the acquisition of Miller Anderson Sherrod and Greystone, And then the big deal was the merger with Dean Witter.
0: So what did you learn through that hyper growth stage in those couple of years that stayed with you?
1: It was a really interesting time. Morgan Stanley back then was sort of on the cutting edge of international investing, really viewed as one of the true kind of global firms. I mean, you had like Bear Stearns, which was primarily domestic. Even Lehman was primarily a domestic shop back then. And so working at Morgan Stanley really gave me a window into the global nature of markets. What I also learned at Morgan Stanley, because it was one of the white shoe firms, was a sense of pride that people put into the work that they did every day and how the firm really differentiated itself based on its preoccupation with quality quality in terms of the people they hired, quality in terms of the, the work that they did, and quality in terms of the clients that we served. Back then, it was kind of Morgan and Goldman always in a foot race for the bluest of the blue chip clients. And so you just had this tremendous sense of pride belonging to what we would consider to be number one or number two in terms of investment banks back then, depending upon the day of the week that changed. So I want to filter
0: through this some of the conversations we've had about diversity. And so in those first call it 10 years of your career, what were the either the obstacles that you faced or the obstacles that people that were working alongside you faced as an African-American
1: black man rising up in that first decade of your career? So you want to talk about diversity and financial services? They really don't go together, Ted. <laughs> it's like, you know, ketchup and peanut butter. You can't put them on the same sandwich, right? <laughs> I came onto Wall Street, as I said earlier, through a program that was specifically designed to try and diversify the employee base of Wall Street, sponsors for educational opportunity and great organization, probably responsible for 60 to 70% of the African-American population on Wall Street at one point. And so I knew there would be challenges going in. And They had a training program, really, that was designed to help us deal with what I'll call would be potential cultural friction. So we learned how to respond to different scenarios. And So I would say that was a lot like boot camp. Like, what do you do if someone says this to you? What do you do if you feel this way? And so I would say that I kind of entered eyes wide open to what African-Americans experienced on Wall Street. I would say It didn't take long before I had my first experience. I think it was actually, I was at my first closing dinner. You remember back then when a transaction closed, there'd be this big closing dinner. And so I was at a closing dinner and I remember a senior banker making a comment about a club. I don't recall the specific name of the club, but the club back then was all white. And then it was integrated by Bernard Beale. And you may know Bernard. Bernard's a legendary African-American investment banker, ultimately started his own firm. I think he was a Shearson guy originally. Still may have his own firm, M.R. Beal and Company. But he was a legend in my mind. And here I am sitting at a table, and this banker is openly talking about the fact that it was a great club until Bernard joined. And that was sort of my first experience. And that may have been six weeks into my career on Wall Street. And so I would say I saw it at a very early age, but honestly, I always thought that it was worth it. My friends were working at Procter & Gamble or Maxwell House Coffee or Chubb Insurance Company. They weren't making anywhere near the kind of bucks that I was making back then. They weren't getting the kind of bonuses that I was getting. Back then, I was making more at 24, 26 than my parents made at the like, height of their earnings. So we talked about it openly among the African-Americans that I interacted with on Wall Street. We all knew each other because there was very few of us. And we all understood that what we'd have to go through to get access to the kind of wealth creation opportunity we all desired And so we supported each other and we tried to, to the extent that we could, kind of protect each other.
0: Did you get to a point where you felt like your
1: path was impeded just because of race? Yes. Wall Street's about classes. Like, when did you start as an analyst? When did you start as an associate? And so you can look to your left and look to your right. And you can do your own assessment of kind of who's really smart and who's just getting opportunities just because their dad was connected. And that happens very regularly that people who had connections were staffed on certain transactions. You know, they were traveling much sooner than the rest of us. And the cumulative effect of all of those experiences and all of that exposure put them ahead of the class. I rarely ever saw an African American have their career advanced by virtue of the fact that they were considered to be one of the favorites. And we worked as hard as everybody. We came from the same schools as everybody, with the exception of myself. We put the weekends in. We raised our hand when someone said they needed something done. But it never quite worked out the same way it did for some other people. And so you could see people's careers advancing at a much faster rate than those of us who viewed ourselves, quite frankly, as equals when we started. I mean, there were guys hopping on airplanes two or three weeks on the job, and it's like, where are you going? You realize that there was a connection there. And then at the end of the day, Wall Street's a meritocracy. And I always say the numbers don't lie. And at the end of the year, you can add everything up. Well, if an African-American marketing professional Or asset manager or portfolio manager had much less in the way of an opportunity set, fewer clients to cover, smaller dollars to manage. At the end of the year, when you rolled the numbers up, you kind of came to this justification as to why these people got promoted and paid more and why these people didn't. But no one really ever said, well, were they given a head start? Were they given an advantage? Were they given a bigger opportunity set? And so I would say that the street wasn't the kind of place where people were classless. Outside of that dinner, which I thought was classless, how that conversation came up, for the most part, people weren't classless about how they went about this. And maybe in some cases, they were absolutely oblivious to how their decisions were disproportionately negatively impacting African-Americans. Some people on Wall Street don't even know what racism is. They don't really quite understand how how decision that they make or a comment that they make could be viewed as offensive or hurtful.
0: As you look back now, at least in that early part of someone's career, how do you think change needs to happen to balance that out, even if it's just on Wall Street and investment banking? So even though
1: the question really revolves around what needs to happen at the bottom, I think the solution comes from the top. So often on Wall Street, I mean, you've seen this, Ted, in your career, we get these fads where people jump on things. Climate change might be a good example of them. And people always want to be positioning themselves to be on the right side, especially on the right side of how clients are thinking. And so today you're seeing people openly embrace Black Lives Matter. Six months ago, they weren't. A year ago, they weren't. Now they are. The climate is now centered around social and racial justice. And so out of a lot of C-suites, you're seeing announcements about how they're engaging the firm in open dialogue around diversity and race, specifically as it relates to African-Americans. You're seeing people talk about hiring more, the need to do more. The question I have is, are we really reading from the talking points and trying to pacify what's of interest today to the consumer marketplace? Or do we really fundamentally, in our heart of hearts, want change? Really feel like we can improve lives if we open up Wall Street to be in an equal opportunity industry. Until people truly understand the impact That racism has not just on an individual's career, but on that individual's family and that individual's community, they won't really understand why it's necessary. So, when you saw all of the protests that really centered around the death of George Floyd, you had really heightened emotions like a pot, things had boiled over. Well, I would argue that the water wasn't cold until George Floyd was murdered in the streets of Minneapolis. The water was already hot. And a big reason why that water was hot is the conditions of blacks and African-Americans in this country after 400 years of stepping foot on this soil. They still have higher unemployment rates, higher death rates, lower life expectancies, lower income levels, lower net worth levels. And so what you saw was a response to their conditions. And I think that not just Wall Street, but all of corporate America, if they were to understand what they could do to chill the waters and the decisions that they make every single day, they truly understand why it's necessary to go beyond talking points and actually take action.
0: One of the challenges that I've seen, and it goes back to what you were saying as an analyst, that some of the people on Wall Street don't even recognize how their actions can contribute to the perpetuation of these problems. And I know separately we had had a conversation about how some of those dynamics play out in the relationships between, say, an investment management firm and a client. And I'd love to hear your perspectives on other examples of subtle forms of racism that are still a problem in the industry.
1: I would argue that for most of my career, I didn't quite understand that not only do Blacks play the race card. In other words, I'm going to put that out there as an opportune moment. Whites in our industry also play the race card and put that out there at an opportune moment. And very early in my career, I sort of saw how race was used from a strategic standpoint. And it was... For example, if you were African-American, you got put into certain areas of the investment bank or you got put into certain roles in the investment bank. Same was the case for women. It wasn't just on racial basis. If you were a woman, you got put into certain types of roles. You got put on certain types of clients. And so the game that's played on Wall Street that isn't so subtle is that if there is a client and the firm wants to do business with that client, they think that they need to select a woman if that client is a woman. Or they think they need to select an African-American if that client is an African-American. Likewise, they need to pick a white male if that decision maker is a white male. Well, the bottom line is that most of the decision makers in these environments are white males. And so what you're doing is you're perpetuating the issue by your unwillingness to come to the conclusion that a woman can call on a white male and a white male can call on a woman and an African-American can call on a white and a white can call on an Hispanic. And so that is how I sort of saw Wall Street playing the race card. And maybe sometimes that might have worked to an African American's advantage because they felt like there was more receptivity, but it didn't train that African American to be able to deal with the diversity that exists in the world of decision makers. And likewise, as I said earlier, it certainly limited the opportunity in terms of who they would let us cover. One of the areas that African-Americans always got pushed into was municipal finance. Why? Because they felt like government institutions would be a better place for them to go knocking and calling versus calling on corporate America. That was an acknowledgement that corporate America had an issue, that they didn't think their African-American that they selected out of Harvard or Yale or Princeton could actually have success. Or they would have a lower probability of success. To me, that was the decision maker actually acknowledging that racism exists. Those are great examples
0: of an attempt of, let's just say the sales process playing on behavior. So we know that we all have more affinity to people in our quote unquote tribe, whether that tribe is defined by gender or race or sports or where we went to school and so on the one hand you could see an institution a bank who's trying to maximize their profits just playing on that psychology and that probably you know the research would show yeah that's right now on the other hand because there was already bias in the system it perpetuates that bias how do you think about these trade offs of that's a problem in corporate america therefore it becomes a problem in wall street Is Wall Street the right one to correct the problem, or
1: is corporate America the right one to correct the problem? I think about corporate America and Wall Street almost as one and the same. When it comes to issues related to race, both have a responsibility. The same way I think about the Republican and the Democratic Party when it comes to issues of race. Both have a responsibility. So from my point of view, we have to shed the titles, and what we really need is leadership, people who are willing to say the organization that I command is going to change. I'm going to do something inside my ecosystem to create opportunities for women to advance to the point where they are making game-changing decisions inside my organization. I'm going to do something to create opportunities for African-Americans so that they have game-changing opportunities inside the organization. And until that happens, you're not going to see true change. I think it takes diversity at the senior levels of organizations, whether that's boards or C-suites or managing director levels, to truly make decisions every day that favor or benefit diversity. And so I don't necessarily disagree with your point that if you were to have some scientists kind of come in and study human behavior and how they make decisions and who they're comfortable with, it may very well lead to the decisions that have been made, Ted. I think where I part ways with it is that it shouldn't be allowed to hurt people. It shouldn't be allowed to disproportionately negatively affect a certain group of people. That's where a true leader steps in. And says, okay, change has to be made and people have to be held accountable. I mean, after all, this is Wall Street, right? This is where the smartest people go when they leave good schools. And when they go back to business school, this is where they come back to. And when I say Wall Street, the whole complex, management, consulting, accounting, you know, banking, asset management, we know how to create systems that produce desired results. This is what we do all day, every day. So it shouldn't be difficult for us to produce an ecosystem that produces what we need it to produce.
0: I want to turn back to your career path and get into Blueprint. But before we do that, I just have to ask, are there other subtle examples of things that you saw through your career in the system that were also
1: kind of perpetuating this problem? Outside of how opportunity was allocated it sort of gets back to the points that you touched on. People tend to hang out with people that they feel most comfortable with. And very often they don't quite realize how that socialization that in ways excludes others leads to a greater affinity for those individuals. And sort of this gets into sometimes people not understanding how Their actions are driving behavior and driving decisions. There's definitely, I would say, a correlation between the careers of individuals who belong to the same clubs and went to the same schools. And I'm sure the very same scientists could figure stuff out like that. To me, that's sort of the subtlest causes of it, is that people are innocently socializing with people who they have a lot in common with. But they don't realize how that becomes exclusionary in the mind of someone else. So when I come in on Monday and you guys are talking about how you golfed over the weekend and I never got that invitation to golf, and I know that come year end, you're making decisions that affect my promotion and my compensation. How do you think I feel? I feel like I'm left out. I'm on the outside looking in. I'm now a little bit paranoid. How am I going to figure out how to develop the kind of relationship with that guy that my colleague has when I don't have those connectivity points? So sometimes it's as innocent as they're just doing what they feel comfortable doing. And I guess, how do you get a person to kind of open up their heart and their mind to say, hey, you know, it'd be nice if I asked that kid over there to come spend the weekend at my summer home. And I could learn more about him and his family. Because when you do learn about him and his family, sometimes it pulls on your heartstrings. Right? And you start saying to yourself, and it's maybe it's not a broader issue, I'm going to start helping black people. But it's like, I'm going to help this kid. Because I realize what's at stake for him. I realize the pressures that he's feeling, being in this environment where people don't look like him. Things like I'm sitting in my office. I share an office with a white guy, and guy comes in and says, "Hey, Jake, great basketball game I watched over the weekend." And then he turns to my office mate and says, "Hey, what'd you think of the Princeton Yale lacrosse game?" Things like that. You say to yourself, "Okay, you're asking me about basketball because I'm six two and black. You're asking him about lacrosse because you know he's five ten and white, right?" And so, those are subtle things that. To African-Americans, they've registered, Ted. And I know a white person can never get inside our head to understand the sensitivity points, but they're there like, and they're real. And I think we have to do a better job of articulating them and Wall Street has to do a better job of letting us articulate. In other words, there can't be a price to pay for honestly disclosing your feelings, right? There has to be an embrace of that before we move forward.
0: I want to circle back to kind of where we were with your career, because after Morgan Stanley, I know you spent the better part of the last two decades in and around the hedge fund space in a whole bunch of different seats. In that path for those 15 years in between Morgan Stanley and Blueprint, what were the key things you learned and
1: embraced in how you think about investing? So I made decisions a little differently than most people. I never really left a job to take another job for money. Like, I'm a really intellectually curious person. I love to read. I love to do my own independent research. I'm always trying to think about, like, how to put more up here in my head. Because I think that that truly, at the end of the day, is one of my edges, is how I take all that information, synthesize it, and express it in a decision or a recommendation. So I always wanted to work for people who I thought were really smart. So when I went to work at ATOS, and Cassell's was this legendary allocator who came from Stanford University one of the thought leaders in the endowment and foundation space. And let's face it, you know, over the course of my career anyway, the smartest people worked for endowments and foundations. And so I really wanted to understand how she thought about making investment decisions. When I went to work for Citadel, it was an opportunity to go work for a guy who I think holds the title, world's best moneymaker, Ken Griffin, and a chance to understand how he put that organization together, how he managed to just print money for a longer period of time than anybody else. When I went to work for more Capital, I was going to work for the world's largest hedge fund. And this legendary investor, Louis Bacon, who no one knew anything about who I never thought the thing that we had in common that really allowed us to hit it off was the fact that we both enjoyed hunting. When I went to Ramius or Cowan, Peter Cohen was there. And to me, Peter is like one of the world's greatest deal makers. He's probably done more deals on Wall Street than anybody I can think of. And so, you know, an opportunity to work for people like that really drove my decisions to go work at different firms. All with a view that someday I was going to be able to take all of that and create Blueprint. And so what were some of those great lessons you learned along the way? So let's take Peter Cohen, for example. The reason why Peter does so many deals or has done so many deals is because he's looked at so many deals. And the thing that he taught me was that, Jake, it never hurts to have a conversation. You'll learn something, you'll meet somebody, but you may also be introduced to an opportunity. And so it sounds simple, but it's something I learned a lot from with Ken Griffin. I realized that there's a guy who is so passionate about what he does, he'll probably do it until he's 85 and his track record won't suffer, that you have to find what you truly love doing day in and day out and apply yourself to it. And if you do, it really doesn't feel like work. And what he also taught me is surround yourself with the best people you possibly can, whether that's a board, advisory board, employees, don't think that you have all the answers. Another thing he taught me is don't be afraid to make the hard decision. Whether it's moving on from an asset class or moving on from people. Robert Smith taught me about team building. It's important to know when to get the right people on the bus, but it's also important to know when to get the right people off the bus. Bill Stone from SS&C taught me think about yourself as a general and you're going to get to the top of that hill and you have to explain to your troops that you're going to get to the top of the hill there will be casualties but the organization is going to get to the top of the hill. so I learned some just some great things from some great people that I worked for and those that I was able to come into contact with by virtue of the work that I was doing. And I tried to take lessons away from all of them. So if if you were to throw a name out of someone I worked with, I can probably tell you that there's this lesson that I learned from them. And that's kind of my philosophy on life. Like I try to learn something from people every time I meet them. And the root of that was growing up, working in my parents' restaurant as a bartender. So at 15 years old, I'm bartending, And it was a family-owned business, so I was allowed to. But I got to talk to older people each and every day that I worked. And I was always curious by their stories and always learning something from them. And so that sort of became how I went about life was people would come in and order a drink. And I might not see them again for a really long time. But I remembered something they taught me or remembered a part of their story. So my career has been about meeting the right people and learning from them and applying all those lessons. When we
0: first met, I don't remember which one, but you were in the consulting side between Axia and Cliffwater, maybe both. And I'm curious how those experiences formed increasingly, like how you thought about investing.
1: So the thing about the consulting business is you're accountable to an institutional investor. And as an asset manager, you always feel like you're sitting across the table from the allocator, when you work at a consulting firm, you're now sitting on the same side of the table as the allocator. So your ability to really understand how decisions are made and how people think when you as an investment manager are not in the room is what I would say is the greatest benefit. It's kind of how the sausages are really made. Like, what are the ingredients that go into decisions? And that is invaluable in terms of your ability to develop relationships with other institutional investors. Because I think sometimes, in my career at least, I have found that the street produces a product. And then it goes out there and it tries to jam that product through decision makers. And what it taught me was that reverse engineer the process. Go and spend time with the institution and understand how they really think, understand how their decisions are made, understand what their goals and objectives are, understand what their fears are, how they define risk. What are they really looking for in a way of return? And then you can go away and produce a great product that may not necessarily sail through a decision-making process because that rarely happens, but I think you have a higher probability of success. And that's really what we were doing with the FAIR program that we proposed to New Jersey and is now the subject of this litigation is we had taken all those experiences and and put it all into a program that we thought had a great probability of success. And that's how I think I ultimately arrived at, at how to put that together was my experience kind of being on the same side of the table as some institutions. I want to talk
0: about the lawsuit. Before we do that, let's touch on Blueprint. What was the original model
1: and how has it evolved over the last five years? So the original model really was all about getting investors to think differently about how they were allocating to alternatives, really with a view towards bringing down the costs of investing in alternatives. We went around and analyzed investor portfolios And believe it or not, Ted, despite some of the world's largest institutions being invested in hedge funds and other types of alternative products, they were paying full fees. The overwhelming majority of the industry was paying full fees. And we knew that wasn't sustainable. And so if we could wedge ourselves in between the institution and the managers in a very creative way, it created a business opportunity for us. When we started, the world was still pretty smitten with hedge funds. And over time, I think hedge funds became less of a priority for institutions. They became a headache for a lot of institutional decision makers, given the performance relative to the fees. And so to be successful in the asset management business, you have to be able to read the tea leaves. And so I think one of the things that we did well was we saw the opportunity emerging in niche private credit strategies. And so we pivoted well, began to apply our research to looking into niche private credit strategies and felt like we had developed a universe that could be considered the new absolute return. I mean, you remember what absolute return used to be no matter what the market is, that's up. And we took a look at some of these niche private credit strategies where you were getting 6 to 8% cash yields through points and participation in the back end. You were getting 10 to 12% IRRs. We were in a global uptick, and so default rates were really low. Fees were more moderate than hedge funds. Fees were not being booked on unrealized gains, And so there were a lot of advantages that we thought we could bring to investors. And there was a universe out there that was falling below the radar screen of a lot of institutional consultants. And so we started focusing on funds that had less than a billion dollars in AUM that were doing opportunistic slash niche private credit type transactions.
0: And I know as you evolve this, and we, we can kind of go into that issue now, New Jersey was a client. And somewhere along the way, the nature of that relationship changed. So why don't you talk a little bit about what's all transpired?
1: Sure. So it's out there now publicly that we did something that we really didn't want to do. We did not want to file a lawsuit. New Jersey and the other relevant institutions involved here, BlackRock and Cliffwater, in my view, did some things that are unethical unlawful and downright unfair from our perspective. And we tried. We tried to have conversations about what occurred. We provided so much documentation to prove our point. And we kept getting rebuffed. No one wanted to take us seriously. And I'll be honest with you, when we first started these conversations about having to litigate, people kind of blew us off and said, this doesn't even warrant our intention. Fast forward, we got to a point where we were like, look, we've given you enough time to research this internally to figure out if our allegations are true. By that time, when we said we were going to file, the world had changed. Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, Black Lives Matter, now all of a sudden, Everybody wanted to do an investigation to figure out what had happened here. They take diversity seriously, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We filed. And from our perspective, after trying to figure out how to get people to the table and them not genuinely taking this seriously, it became time to to take a path that very often African Americans have had to take in this country to achieve progress and to have their disputes resolved. One of them's legislation and the other is litigation. And so here we are, we filed this suit last week. And true to form, our lawyers were in touch with BlackRock and they told us they needed more time to complete their investigation. And Kerry and I sat down and said, no, you've been given enough time. We're going to file this lawsuit. And we told them we were going to file it on June 22nd. Larry Fink, comes out with an announcement on June 22nd that he's going to increase his black staff by 30% over four years. I'd like to think that we had positive influence there, but I think that it really was not a heartfelt announcement. It was really designed to try to move the media attention away from what we were accusing them of. Why don't you go ahead and touch on what the lawsuit is. We're alleging that they conspired with the state of New Jersey to take the program that Kerry and I developed, which we originally called FAIR, and they've shamelessly taken credit for it, including receiving industry nominations without giving us credit for it. We were all set to do FAIR on behalf of New Jersey, and New Jersey wanted to be the first in the nation to adopt this FAIR program. We gave them thousands of pages of documents, spreadsheets, models, legal structure, vendors, you name it. They were so interested in it that they said, we want to take a revenue share. And in exchange for the revenue share and the ability to be first, we're going to allocate a significant sum of capital to you. And we went through all of the paces that we needed to go through. We inked term sheets and we got to the point where we went and met the chairman and all was signed off on, and then somehow the approval never occurred. And we were told the agenda's full. We can't get it on the committee agenda. And then the next time around, the agenda's full. At that point, we had spent millions of dollars and we were like getting a little concerned. As it turns out, they were negotiating with BlackRock to actually implement the FAIR program. What is the FAIR program? So basically, the FAIR program, through the use of managed accounts, through the use of certain negotiating methods, which look to trade off different aspects of a more comprehensive set of terms and alignment of interest, which we put under the category of negotiating methods, also how fees were calculated differently and how to present those calculations to the stakeholders of the pension system, all wrapped up into what we called FAIR. At the end of the day, what it was going to deliver to New Jersey from their own perspective was they were going to be able to significantly reduce the costs of investing in alternatives. They were going to be able to transition a lot of their existing alternatives managers onto this model and reduce fees. They were going to get the state investment council off of their back about the level of fees paid They were going to save jobs because it was going to save their hedge fund program and other alternative programs from being cut. And last, they thought it would get them the kind of attention they like to get from industry publications that nominate hedge funds and other asset managers, as well as plant sponsors every year for creativity and thought leadership. And they achieved all of those benefits that we outlined would occur. They just did it with someone else. And our information was marked proprietary, confidential, trade secret, cannot be disseminated without our express permission in writing. We researched New Jersey law because they did not want to sign an NDA. And they pointed us to the law that specifically says that they cannot share one investment manager's information with another investment manager. They pointed us to their ethics policy, which prohibited this, yet and still they still did it. And so when it occurred, I went to the top guy and I said, hey, you can't do this. And he said, yes, I can. Because you came up with this idea doesn't mean I have to do it with you. And I was very clear, like, this is against the law, right? You can't do this. It's theft right? It's usurpation of a business opportunity. And so they didn't take us seriously. We were in a different climate back then. And so we raised it to people higher up. And we did our own investigation. And we later found out after interviewing people who worked at BlackRock, interviewing people who worked at Cliffwater, interviewing people who worked at the DOI, that there was more to it than met the eye that Cliffwater and BlackRock were having conversations about forming a joint venture that would compete with FAIR. Well, is it any coincidence that Cliffwater was the consultant and somehow BlackRock ends up in the picture here? No. There were inappropriate relationships that existed between people at BlackRock and people at the state of New Jersey. And how those relationships developed left us with a bad taste in our mouth. And so... It was very clear to us that inappropriate things occurred behind the scenes. But what was most hurtful in all of this was my conversation with one of the senior people there. And as you could imagine, Ted, I've put my heart and soul, Carrie put her heart and soul into building this. And someone just takes it. And you say to that person, how could this happen? we know each other. And McDonough says to me, Jake, the SIC is not a fan of investing in minority-owned firms. And at that point, you realize your life's work has been taken from you because of the color of your skin or someone's apprehension, their unwillingness to stand up for what's right in that circumstance. So from our point of view, that is worth getting resolved. The fact that we lost out on a significant business opportunity because someone feared presenting a manager that was black owned. And then later followed up in a conversation, Ted, and said, If we're going to get you approved, we need to take all that stuff out of your marketing materials. Now you're saying, I need to whitewash you to get you approved. And unfortunately, throughout my life and my career on Wall Street, I kind of turned the cheek and said, just keep focused on the prize, Jake. At this stage in my life, when I'm seeing my 13-year-old go out there and protest Black Lives Matter... I realized I need to stand up and do what's right to try to fix this and make sure it doesn't happen elsewhere. Because I'm sure this isn't the first time this occurred, this kind of backdoor deal and the apprehension you know, of bringing an African-American firm before an all-white investment committee.
0: How will you view success in the resolution of this, however it plays
1: out? So we've already had success. We were very clear with New Jersey that we were going to litigate And New Jersey has already approved another black-owned manager. They did that just prior to us filing our lawsuit. New Jersey has changed its website. They originally told us, quote unquote, it was against their fiduciary responsibility to invest with women and minority-owned firms. Their website now says, women and minority-owned firms, we're open for consideration. They still have to take action, but at least they're telling people they're open now. In the case of BlackRock, as I mentioned, we told them when we were going to file. And it was no surprise to us that Larry's announcement took place on the very date that we were going to file, arguably to try to get in front of the news cycle. And so I'd like to think that that, along with my testimony before the New Jersey Senate in early January, where I highlighted The Economic Disparities Between Whites and Blacks in New Jersey, two weeks later, the governor in his State of the Union address formed a task force to investigate the economic disparities that exist between blacks and whites in New Jersey. So, Ted, we've already had success, but we're not done yet. If you go back in African-American history, there was a time period in which blacks came up with inventions. The pacemaker the doorknob, the traffic light. They could not get patents and could never, ever have commercial success on the back of their creativity or their inventions. We haven't made all that much progress in this country in 400 years, but this is an area where I intend to make progress. Carrie and I will be rewarded for... All of the creativity that we put into developing this program and all of the sacrifices that my parents made, her parents made, and their parents made to put us in a position to be able to do this. To just walk away from this with no resolution would be to dishonor all of those people who sacrificed on our behalf and to say that the world hasn't changed from the point in time in which blacks couldn't even file patents. So we're going to fight. This is a David versus Goliath type of show. And we intend to do everything we can to bring justice to this matter. And so from our point of view, this is not just about Blueprint. It's bigger. This suit will put a spotlight on how plan sponsors like New Jersey make their decisions and what the issues are there. It will shine a spotlight on how firms like BlackRock play the race card that we talked about earlier in terms of how their professionals are allocated to different accounts. It will shine a spotlight on how one of the nation's most influential alternative consultants is dealing with the issue of race, not only among their own ranks, but how they're handling recommendations of managers. And so to me, this is a landmark case for women and minority-owned managers. And so losing is not an option for us, but winning will not be defined by the size of the check that's written to Blueprint. Winning will be defined in Kerry and my view by how this impacts the industry positively, the women and minorities who work in this industry and the firms that they start in this industry.
0: I think that the gravity and importance of what you're talking about should be left kind of as it is and as you said it, that said, I can't let you go without asking you the closing questions, which tend not to be quite as serious in many instances as what we've been talking about. (laughs) So I'm going to go ahead and do that. And uh, let's start, Jake, with what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family?
1: Yoga is my, my thing. I have one of those minds, Ted's, that's really hard to shut off. And I don't sleep very much. And, you know, I'm always thinking about a business issue. I'm always thinking about a problem to solve. I'm always thinking about a member of my family who may not be feeling well. I just have one of those minds that has a really hard time shutting off. And I have found in yoga something that allows me to actually calm my mind and to find a space where I can truly disconnect from the world. And it also has great sort of physical benefits. And so that's what I do. I do it daily. I find that my days don't go so well when I don't spend at least a half an hour on the mat in the morning. And so that's really kind of like that thing that's all mine, right? Because everything else, when you have as many kids as I do, ends up revolving around other people. And you get to say, I like seeing other people smile, therefore I do X, Y, Z, right? That's the one thing that's mine. If you started
0: your career over today, money was no object and you couldn't be in the investment business, what do you think you'd do?
1: I'd be a school teacher. I actually love teaching. And I think about my job from the standpoint of how a teacher would think about their job, right? My job is to take in a lot of information become expert, synthesize it, and then give it back to someone in the way that they can understand it in a way that hopefully brings them to a decision that has a positive impact on both of us. And so I love digesting information. I love then teaching that information and helping people understand that information. We run an intern program every summer. And at this point, I think we've had like 50 interns come through Blueprint in five years. And My favorite part of the summer is coming in in the morning, prepping for teaching sessions, and then sitting in a conference room with the whiteboard and passing down everything I know. And so I would probably be a school teacher, and then I love sports, and I love working with kids who have mental challenges. Having a kid with mental disabilities myself, it's always been a passion of mine, and I think that there are a lot of people who don't quite understand that kids with ADHD and other types of behavioral issues, if you can get them into a sport and channel that energy, you can have an amazing impact on their life. And so I would say I teach by day and then early evenings, go coach something. What's your biggest pet peeve? I have a bunch of them. I would say if I had to pick one thing that really bothers me, and it sort of relates to work, and I know that's not where you really wanted this to go, It's people not really understanding or trying to maximize their fullest potential. I think so many people place limits on themselves. So many people think the world is not fair to them. So many people think they can't do something. And sometimes when you ask them, they don't even have a reason why. They can't do it. And so what I don't like is the whole concept of giving up. Thinking that you can't possibly make an impact. You can't possibly get a degree. You can't possibly win against someone who might be favored in a competition of some sort. And so I tend to come down pretty hard and have a very low tolerance for people who have a defeated mindset. I tend to favor people who wake up every single morning saying, For 93 seconds, I'm going to punch like Mike Tyson and knock out whatever that obstacle is. I like the person who wakes up every single day thinking, the world is mine. I'm going to go out there and knock the cover off the ball. How about your biggest investment pet peeve? My biggest pet peeve is people who make decisions quickly. Everybody thinks that an opportunity comes your way And you got to move quickly or you're going to miss it. And to me, it's sort of a, a trader's mentality. And I think that there's a big difference between trading and investing. And so for me, I'm the person who gives quick no's and very slow yeses. And I'm not given the yes until I'm completely satisfied. When I have made mistakes in my career... I had doubts and I let other people kind of convince me that, ah, you know, you're just biased or you got to look at it from a different perspective. I now, after 30 years in this game, and I'm sure you feel the same way, I believe in myself and I believe in my process and I'm not going to rush that process to make an investment decision. Let's just take a pass and sit on cash. If it's not there when we're finished with our work, it's not there. But I think that the biggest mistakes are made on the street when people have that short-term mindset. Like, if I don't do this now, I'm going to miss it. Like, this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I mean, you've heard it before, Ted, right? And it comes back to haunt people when they have that kind of mindset.
0: What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: That's an easy one. So watching them start a business in a black community and watching them always stress to us not just through their words, but through their actions, that it's always bigger than you. Always think about what you can do for someone else. Do something every day that you don't get paid for was their thing. And so when I think about my days, I try to spend a portion of my day doing something I don't get paid for. And usually that something is trying to help someone think through a problem help someone kind of secure something they need, access to something. It's donating my time to a nonprofit. It's doing the things that I can do to help make the world a better place just as as they did, right? So I would say the lesson is, you know, do something every day you don't get paid for.
0: All right, last one, Jake. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life?
1: I've always been a pretty confident person. And I've always felt like I walked with this sort of air of invincibility. And a lot of that came from my parents. Like I think they did a good job of and people who in the community kind of saw me as having so much potential that people just kept rooting for me in this back in this small town. And so I always felt like I could do anything. I think that the thing that I wish I knew now that I didn't know then was that even though I thought I could do anything, there was just so much that I really didn't know. And that the best investment of my time would be learning those things I didn't know. And so being more open-minded earlier in life might have benefited me more today but I also think some days I appreciate being closed-minded because it kept me off the streets it kept me from doing things that my friends did that got them into trouble it kept me from damaging my reputation and so being closed-minded had some benefits because I just wasn't willing to do things that my peers thought I should involve myself in but it also, I think, may have closed some doors that maybe led me down other paths. But having said that, overall, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy with where I am in life.
0: Great, Jake. Really appreciate you taking the time and good luck with all
1: this. Thank you, Ted. Really appreciate you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time.
1: This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on this show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of their firm. Managers' appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Alligators.